One of the ways that my job as lead pastor at Blue Valley has changed in the 16-plus years that I've been here is that it is my responsibility and privilege to be able to introduce most of the message series to the church gathered in this format virtually. And so today we are doing that. We are introducing a new series of messages that is going to carry us through Uh, the fall, and it really probably holds the title of the strangest message series that we have ever titled. Uh, The title is Imago Dei, The Image of God. So let's just get all of this out of the way right now. Imago Dei is the phrase that theologians use to reference the image of God, and it is simply the Latin phrase for the English phrase, the image of God. So this series is about the image of God, what it means, and its implications, which are vast. Now, one of my favorite preaching quotes is this, Jesus spent three years making the things of God simple to understand, and preachers have spent the last 2,000 making the things of God difficult to understand. And that may be true of the subject of the image of God, more so than any other doctrine in Scripture. Because, you see, theologians debate whether the image of God refers to the human soul, because God is spirit, or the human mind, because God is rational, or the human body, because God commands that no other image be made of Him, or human rule, because God rules over all, or human relations, because God is triune, or human morality, because God is good, or the mere fact of human existence, because God simply is. But some theologians attempt to identify these connection points to God by debating a different kind of comparison, the difference between, between mankind and, and animals. If they reason, we can list the ways that humanity is different from the rest of creation, then we can better see how we relate to God and we can get to the heart of what the image of God in us is. But regardless of how theologians compile their various lists, they inevitably begin to cull them down and limit the image of God to one or two aspects of human existence. There are problems with doing that. One of them is exegetical, and one of them is historical. Exegetically, as I hope we'll see in a moment, the Bible doesn't limit the image of God to one or two aspects of humanity. So it isn't biblically faithful to lift out one or two human attributes and say, this is the image of God. Historically, The problem is that limiting the image of God to a few aspects of human existence has been used to unleash untold evil in the world, from American slavery to Hitler's final solution to America's own holocaust of abortion. If you can rationalize that a people group is less than human, then you can justify any action toward that group that is imaginable. So, it can't be limited to one or two characteristics without bending Scripture or potentially doing violence to people groups. So, if that's the case, how can we know what the image of God is? Are you in for a couple of months of preachers saying 
for 30 minutes at a pop? We don't really know. That wouldn't be much of a series. And we hope that we're not going to be saying that. Because the image of God, while the effects in and on humanity are measureless, is actually pretty straightforwardly presented in Scripture, though it tends to be much more broad and less specific than what we might think. So today, we are going to introduce this series by asking three simple questions. And that format of three questions is going to be something that we adapt and use for the remainder of this series. I'll show you how we'll do that at the end. But here's today's first question, obviously. What is the image of God? I want you to think about that for a moment. I mean, you've heard that phrase. In your mind, what is the image of God? Well, in order to answer that question, I think we have to go back to the very beginning. I want you to find, if you would please, not only the first book of the Bible, not only the first chapter of the Bible, but probably the first page of your personal copy of God's Word. Find Genesis chapter 1, find verse 26, and follow along as I read. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, to answer our first question, we need to dig into these verses a little bit and see what we turn up. And it really doesn't take any kind of biblical, theological degree to, to figure out what turns up first is the word image, and what turns up next is that phrase, after our likeness, which actually helps shape the understanding of the first word, image. Like, like everything surrounding discussion of the Imago Dei, there are a host of opinions uh, concerning the meaning of words image and likeness. But perhaps the simplest way is to look at another time where Genesis uses these words together because it actually does. And I think you'll find it helpful to, to look at it. So turn a few pages, go to Genesis chapter 5, find verse 3. You can look at it there in your Bibles with me or you can look at it on your screen. Verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, it's obviously a different order of words from the words that are used in uh, Genesis chapter 1, but 
they're there together. So let's look first at the word likeness. If you run down that word in the Old Testament, and really in any language, you'll learn that the word likeness is a word of comparison. Put two things beside one another, and you can tell if they are like one another or if they are unlike one another, of the same kind or not of the same kind. What we're being told in Genesis 5-3 is that Seth looked like Adam, but not in that he had Adam's eyes and nose. It's that he had eyes and a nose. What we're being told here is that human Adam and human Eve produced a child like them, a human child. But likeness also communicates that while Seth was human like Adam, he wasn't Adam, which brings us to the word image. That word in the Old Testament always conveys the idea of physical representation. Seth wasn't Adam, but he was a physical representation of Adam's basic humanity. Now, if we carry that idea of physical representation and image and the idea of similar characteristics in likeness back to Genesis 1, we begin to grasp that we are being told that mankind was created as a physical representation of the divine God with characteristics like God, but not God in himself or divine in ourselves. Now, all of that sounds very strange. It sounds like I'm saying to you that we are being told in Genesis 1 that we physically look like God or something like that. But hang on with me for 10 more seconds. When kings established their rule and authority in ancient times over a land that they had conquered, they would erect images of themselves as a sign of their rule over that land. And maybe now a light's starting to come on. Mankind is a physical representation of God's authority over creation. Like God but not God. As the sculpted image of a king wasn't the king, merely a sign of that king's rule, so mankind isn't divine or God. We are merely a sign of his rule that he has placed physically here. But mankind shares the likeness of our king in ways that inanimate statues cannot. So humanity is the sign that God established here, pointing to himself as ruler over creation. But we also bear likeness to God. We are like him in some ways. Now hang on to that thought. If we keep digging in these verses, the next words that we uncover are the words male and female. Now there's an aspect of this that we'll save for next week, but the primary meaning is simple. All of humanity... Male and female were created as physical signs of God's rule over creation that are like him in some ways. So all of humanity, not just some of us, serve as a physical sign of God's authority and rule and are like him in some ways. No other creature serves this purpose or shares this likeness. Our presence here is God's way of saying, this is mine. This belongs 
to me. So God created humanity to image himself in our world as a sign that points to him as the world's ruler and the likeness to God. The ways that we are like him are the things about us that actually point to God. And this identity as his image and likeness that points to him is simply what it means to be human. Thus, the image and likeness of God in us isn't best understood as one thing, but is instead best understood as all of the things that make us human in our soul and mind and relationships and moralities and abilities and on and on and on. Being made in the image and likeness of God is simply what it means to be human, save for one very important aspect of humanity, our sin. We were meant to learn what it means to image God in the world from God himself. He was to show us what being his representative in the world meant and what it was all about. But Genesis 3 tells us that all that we were created to be was short-circuited because the relationship that was to inform our understanding of what it meant to be human and what it meant to image God in the world, a relationship with God himself, was devastated totally by sin. Mankind was cut off then from fulfilling our imaging purpose because we were cut off from God. But that purpose to establish an image of God in our world, remained in place. We see that clearly in Genesis 5.1 when the first human genealogy is introduced. There it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then we see when we get to verse 3 that Adam and Eve reproduced someone in the image and likeness of God. Adam is passing that image and likeness on to Seth, who then passed it on to Enosh, who then passed it on to Kenan, and on and on it goes. But as the rest of Genesis and all of Scripture bears out, mankind finds it impossible to live in the fullness of that identity because of Genesis 3. We have been cut off from our ability to learn from the one who was to show us what it meant to image him in the world because of our sin. And so that then leads to our next question. Where is the image of God seen? If sin has severed our ability to learn the ways of imaging God, where can we see an uncorrupted picture of what our human identity as the image of God looks like without the stain of sin? And over and over again, the New Testament has one answer. Jesus. Jesus is the one who shows us. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The image of the invisible God. Now, it's important to understand here that the language in which the New Testament was written and the language in which the Old Testament was written use the word image differently. In the Old Testament, as we've already seen, image carries the idea of physical representation. But in the New Testament, 
It also can mean the idea of manifestation. So Colossians 1 is either saying that Jesus was a symbol of God, like you and I are meant to be a symbol of God, or that he is the manifestation of God, meaning that Jesus wasn't just a symbol of God in the world, he was God in the world. So which idea did Paul have in mind, that idea of something symbolic? or an actual manifestation of the person of God in our world. Well, let's see what he says next. You tell me, verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh, That job description can only be filled by one being, God. So it sounds to me like Paul is saying that Jesus manifested God in the world, that Jesus is God. So then, we're being told that the perfect human representation of what it means to fulfill our identity as the image of God in the world is God himself in human flesh, Jesus Christ. God the Son fulfills God the Father's perfect intention for humanity in the world. Now here's one Very important implication of all this. Jesus shows us how we are to live in light of that identity as the image of God. In other words, Jesus shows us what it really means to be human. If we want to know the implications of living out the image of God in the world, as God's representative in the world, if we want to know what it means to be an image bearer, we should look to how Jesus lived. His life shows us what it means to bear God's image and how to live out our lives as image bearers. And looking to his life will be the very thing that we do for the rest of this message series. But there remains one very important problem, which is the focus of our last question. How can the image of God be fulfilled in us? I mean, we've already talked about how sin has cut us off from the relationship. And because of sin, it doesn't matter, really, what kind of exemplar Jesus is of the Imago Dei. We can't follow that. It is a nice little bracelet, but it is impossible to actually do what Jesus did. We cannot do it because of sin. And so Jesus needed to do more than just show us what being a true human looks like. He needed to show us how to have our sin removed so that our true humanity could come out. And here's how the New Testament writer Paul puts it in Romans chapter 6 in verses 5 through 8. He says, "...for if we have been united with Him in a death like His..." we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. But here, here's what we need to hear for today. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Now, I get that that Paul's logic sometimes can be intimidating, but what he's saying here, if you can relax, is actually very simple. He is saying that Christ fully identified with our sin by taking it on himself on the cross. And the result is 
that we now fully identify with him by taking his life into our own so that we quite literally carry him with us wherever we go. He becomes, we're being told in Romans chapter 6, a full participant in our lives. It means then that we bear the image of God in us as we bear Christ in us. And the implications of that in living out our human identity as image bearers is huge. It means that we are able to fulfill our purpose as humans because Jesus is operating in our life, restoring us to what we were meant to be and allowing us to truly be human. Now, unfortunately, that's a process because we still have sin stubbornly clinging to us. But all of the Christian life is rooted in the hope that in spite of our inclination to live subhuman lives, there will come a day when everything is fixed. As one New Testament writer, John, puts it in 1 John 3.2, it's on your screens, read it with me, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see him as he is. We will one day finally, truly be human as we were meant to be, as God's image bears in the world, because we will be like Jesus and be restored to the humanity that Adam and Eve, so far in all of human existence, have been the only one privileged to experience. So here's the summary. The image of God is simply all that it means to be human. Jesus shows us perfectly what that means. And Jesus perfectly restores that image in us by living through us when we are joined to Him by the power of the Holy Spirit in salvation. And armed with that understanding, we are going to ask three questions in every sermon this fall as we look at a variety of of the areas that our identity as image bearers should inform. We'll look at the topic of the day and ask, what did Jesus teach? Which is just another way of saying, what is true? Because Jesus is God, and what Jesus teaches is truth. Then we'll ask, what did Jesus do? How did Jesus manifest the implications of the image of God, His true humanity in the area about which we are talking. And finally, we'll ask, what did Jesus command? As His followers, what is expected of us as representation of God's authority in the world on the topic that we are considering for that particular day? Now, here's what I know. I've been doing this a long time. This has felt heavy and heady, and deep, and you're going, man, 10 weeks of that. That's going to be fantastic. But it will get better. <laughs> but I also have to, to do this. I have to attach a warning label to this entire series. This series will be the most confrontational message series we've ever preached. And the reason is rooted in how we tend to define ourselves 
apart from our identity as image bearers, and how, on the basis of that subhuman identification, we process truth. Ours is an incredibly fractured culture. That's news to no one. Nor is it news that the fault line of that fracture is the constant pressure created by the opposing tectonic plates of conservatism and liberalism, which has produced a swarm of cultural earthquakes that has shaken the foundations of our society in ways that I could have never dreamed when I entered ministry almost 40 years ago, mainly because of how these cultural earthquakes have shaken the foundation of the church in our world and even the foundations of our little corner of the Christian globe at Blue Valley. You're obviously aware of this pressure. You are immersed in it, and you have been shaken by the constant tremors it generates. But what you may not have noticed is that the pressure point for almost all of these upheavals is what it means to be created in the image of God, what it means to be human. That is why this is the most necessary message series we've ever preached. It goes to the heart of almost everything that divides our culture. But that's not the warning label. Being faithful to the biblical teaching on the image of God and its implications requires us to repent. And I use that word intentionally, to repent of defining ourselves by conservative and liberal categories. Here's why. Obviously, defining ourselves in any way other than image bearers is subhuman. But specifically, when we think of ourselves primarily as conservatives or liberals, we have people in our church, by the way, who define themselves by both labels. When we primarily think of ourselves by those labels, that identity then becomes very quickly the lens by which we determine truth. We're rarely aware that it's happening. We think we're conservative or liberal because of what is true. And that may have been somewhat true of our motivations at the beginning, but I promise you, I absolutely promise you that a conservative or liberal identity begins to dictate what is true to you. And this series, more than any other we can preach, is going to unmask it. You say, well, tell me how that can happen. I'll tell you how. Right out of the gate, over the next two weeks, we're going to talk about the implications of the biblical teaching on the image of God, on how we view gender and sexuality and marriage and singleness. And those among us who define themselves as conservative will likely say, go get them, preacher. But those who define themselves as liberal among us will likely feel their defenses go up. And they will start to parse every word we say, looking for anything that allows them to rationalize their way out of what we are teaching the Bible to be saying because on that particular subject, your, your ideological tribe has a worldview that frames the truth on that differently. Later on in this series, we're going to talk about the implications of the biblical teaching on the image of God and how we view race relations and refugees and immigrants and those who define themselves as liberal will likely say, it's my turn now. Go get him, preacher. 
But those who define themselves as conservatives will likely feel their defenses go up and will start to parse every word we say looking for anything that allows them to rationalize their way out of what we are teaching the Bible to be saying on that subject because your ideological tribe frames the truth on that differently. And I'm not even mentioning how our conservative and liberal identities cause us to view all of these topics not as life issues but as political issues or how at the end of the series we'll be inclined to debrief it and conclude that the preacher's picked on one side more than the other and say, I knew it, our leadership is woke or right wing, depending on your bent. This will be undoubtedly the most confrontational message series that we have ever preached. So here finally is the warning label. Proceed with caution. And here's the caution. Understand how easy it is for all of us in the pervasive, conservative, liberal argumentation that surrounds us to define truth on the basis of those categories. Instead, let's make a commitment to do what we should have always done, to define truth by two different categories. Is it true to God's Word? And is it faithful to the witness and life of Jesus? Those are the only two things that matter when we are thinking about truth. Is it true to the Word of God? And is it faithful to the witness and life of Jesus? Because at the end of the day, Our allegiance isn't to the conservative tribe or the liberal tribe. Our allegiance is to King Jesus and the kingdom over which he reigns. And our one and only task is to image him properly in the world in which we live. And you may be walking out of here saying, I get what he's saying now. He's saying we need to be in the middle. No, I'm not saying we need to be in the middle. I'm saying we need to be Christian. I'm saying we need to be followers of Jesus. And we may attach ourselves to bodies outside of the church that will help us accomplish some of that agenda. But we also recognize it is super easy for us to having identified with those outside groups to begin to justify everything about that group, and that's sin. That is sin. So I'm not saying be in the middle. I'm saying check other. I'm saying let's be image bearers of King Jesus. That's what this series is going to be about. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.